Hello, this is Larry Dobrow, MMM's senior editor, and welcome to the MMM podcast. Uh, today we are joined by Justin Chase, who's EVP Innovation and Media at InTouch Group, and we'll start bugging him in a second. But first, a couple of quick plugs. Uh, we have our Best Places to Work annual feature coming up, and submissions are due by the beginning of next month, so please check in on that. And the MMM Awards are at Cipriani Wall Street in October, so for tickets or any other information, please reach out. Justin, thanks so much for joining us here today on a nice uh, 95-degree day here in a <laughs> lovely midtown Manhattan. Yeah, I just walked over from our offices on 7th and 37th. It's about 150 degrees out, but yeah. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good because, you know, this lousy air conditioning in the studio we have here, it's going to feel much better after being outside in the heat. For Anything is better than outside at this point, so... So yeah, you know, I, I think one of the reasons we wanted to have you in here today, we've been chasing you for so long, is that you know your role is so broad and covers so many topics that are on the cutting edge of not just healthcare marketing, but also healthcare technology. So uh, most of our conversation is going to be along those lines. And um, I guess the first question is probably the most broad place we can start, but um, tell me a little bit about the role, kind of how it's defined, kind of how it was built up to what it is today. Sure. So um from an innovation perspective, and this, uh, I think is just, there's a really interesting story about in touch and innovation. And for those of, you know, people who know in touch clients, uh, staff members, members of the media, et cetera, know how in touch for the most part. And this is, I think a core part of why we're talking is an agency so much known for innovation. Innovation is, is, is really our lifeblood. And um, for me, I think one of the most exciting things is to see a leader and CEO who has adopted and embraced and espoused innovation and innovative principles for the better part of the, the past 20 years. And kind of a really funny anecdote from 20 years ago and how InTouch started, which I don't know that many people know, but it's just a, a cool story. Um, Farouk, the, our CEO who worked at Teva um, for a number of years in the IT or tech department, was really, really pro-patient and believed at the time there wasn't really a good channel or platform by which patients could interact and engage and connect with one another. And they were doing, obviously, a lot of work uh, with their brands and in particular in the MS space. And one of the things that Farouk created at the time, this is almost 20 years ago, which for all intents and purposes ended up looking very much like a forum. And he mm -hmm. basically created the one of the first social media forums specifically for patients, in this instance, MS patients. So he creates that in his role kind of in IT. Um, he ends up going out and because many patients that they're trying to target don't even have computers, literally driving around with computers in his car um, to individual patients to deliver them so that they could engage on this platform and connect with one another. Which ranks as really one of the best superhero origin <laughs> stories that we have in healthcare marketing, but yeah. Um, so you can imagine being into innovation and excited by it and waking up every day and think of new ways in which we could leverage innovation to impact the, you know, the healthcare value chain, getting behind a leader like that is really very easy. Um, and Farouk, I guess I'd known Farouk for a couple of years, um, well, in other jobs. And, um, I actually had talked to him a couple times and was going to come over and I didn't think the timing was right. And there were some other things going on. And ultimately about a year, year and a half later, I called him back up and we connected right around CES um, and it ended up being just such an opportune moment for me. And I think for InTouch, InTouch has been in super growth mode for the past couple of years. But um, 
that in particular coming in to really build out an innovation practice was really exciting. And then the bridge to media is that although there might seem like there's some disparity between the two disciplines or practices, I'd argue that one of the most innovative industries over the past two or three years has been healthcare and very much so right alongside that has been media. The number of media tools, platforms, channels, programs, packages now that our partners are offering that, whether it's through artificial intelligence, whether it's smarter ways to target or hyper-target, whatever the case may be, there's so much innovation going on in the media space. And you kind of juxtapose that to the innovation going on in healthcare. Merging the two is, is for me, kind of like a match made in heaven. It's an unbelievably exciting I mean, it makes perfect sense to combine the two of them, given that the, I mean, there's almost kind of a paralleling pace of growth and change and everything else. How tough is it, though, keeping up with that pace? Um, it's not really, it's not really something that you can say, well, six months from now, we're going to be here because, you know, two months from now, you might be in a vastly different place based on uh, the way everything's changing as rapidly as it has. It's, it's, I won't lie. I mean, it's definitely challenging because the pace of change, I mean, just thinking of all the not sub-disciplines, but categories of media from paid to social to paid social to search to SEO. There's so much there. And any one of those things obviously warrants a full-time job. And there's so much innovation just going on in any one of those specific capabilities or disciplines. And then combine that with larger innovation opportunities. And so much of innovation for us, I think what's great is that we have the technical resources to be able to do so much of our own innovation. In other words, there are innovative think tanks that will partner with our clients in the pharmaceutical space to provide really great ideas and thinking and counsel. But when it comes down to execution, they just don't have the capability you know, to be able to do that. Conversely, there are shops that just do production, but don't have the degree of strategy. And it's even more than strategy. Um, when you think of innovation, it's really the ability to think out three or four or five or six or 10 years in the future. And that's one of the things that Farouk does so well. Uh, that's you know some of the things that thinkers on my innovation team do so well. And it's exciting to kind of identify what those things are going to be and then iterate and synthesize ways in which we can leverage them to impact the healthcare and certainly the media uh, ecosystem. Uh, how, how big is your team? Um, what are some of the most pivotal, mo- most important roles on it? Sure. Um, so the team... When I started, maybe two and a half, almost three years ago now, uh, I want to say it was maybe 55 people. The team is almost 100 people across those two disciplines now. And in touch in general has grown. We've opened up a Boston office. We're opening up West Coast. So there's so much going on. I've needed to build out a team to support um, all of those offices. I think one of the most exciting things we're doing across those disciplines is the way in which we've built out our programmatic capability. Um, And I think we've talked about this before as well, but the programmatic space is one in which we can target, we can buy, we can scale. There's so much that we can do that allows us, I believe, to compete with much larger agencies. So the playing field in so many ways is leveraged. Um, When I talk to my media team now, they not only need to be media experts, they need to be healthcare experts. And now because of the proliferation of programmatic, they also need to be tech experts and coming from an agency that is as digitally and innovation centric, it hasn't been a big leap for us, which is why it's really exciting for me to see our our growth trajectory, which has been just phenomenal. Um, how, how tough is it to find those people, the ones that can do technology, that understand media, that understand healthcare? Or is it a matter of finding somebody that you know can do two of them very well and then possibly teaching them the third component? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, 
in general, trying to staff for media roles right now, particularly lower level media roles, media planner in general across any industry, any vertical is one of the most difficult yeah, roles possible. to staff for. Clients are trying to bring some degree of planning in-house and do media in-house, and there are benefits to that certainly, but there are also you know many um, hills or hurdles that they need to overcome. So that's just a highly competitive role. And I would argue too that the, the look of the job force from an employer's perspective as is difficult or challenging as it ever has been, you know, maybe since the 70s. The number of, um, you know, qualified, skilled workers who can actually do this is so, so unbelievably minute. And it's because unemployment is as low as it is in the United States. And, and that's great um, for 99.9% for .9 of people, for the employers who are trying yeah. <laughs> to stand for those positions. Of course, it's a little bit more challenging. Well, lousy, good economy, I tell you. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I think one of the reasons that we we're so keen to have you in here today was that, um, you know, I think it's, you addressed it when you were talking about Farouk, but, you know, InTouch has always been so progressive from a technological perspective. Um, recently, you know, InTouch put out a, I thought, a fascinating um, ebook on AI and some of the tactics associated um, with AI. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, it's funny, when we were reporting on AI a couple months ago, you know, somebody said to me, you know, when you talk with someone about AI, here's how you know whether or not they're full of it. If they just say AI, 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 they don't know what they're talking about. If they reference specific AI topics, whether it's natural language processing, whether it's anything along those lines, then you know that you're in a place with a, you know, you're in a conversation <laughs> with someone who knows what he or she is talking about. Um, t tell me a little bit about how InTouch has, you know, managed not just to start off so well with some of those techniques, but, um, you know, kind of par parlayed it into a real advantage. Sure. So one of the things, as you mentioned, the survey that we predicted, this is a year ago, is that by 2025, artificial intelligence in particular was going to have majorly impacted the healthcare ecosystem. Um, I still believe we're very much on track to deliver this. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe the ecosystem, the healthcare ecosystem that we all live and play within is uh, is ripe for change and innovation and disruption in a good way. I think a lot of that, if not almost all of it, will be done through the use and application of smart artificial intelligence. One of the things that I noticed last year was that um, healthcare had surpassed retail and manufacturing as the number one job field in the United States. I think that's largely a product of an aging population and demographic. Um, which is certainly understandable. At the same time, I think the only way that we're going to get in front of that and be able to provide the level of care that we're going to, to have to provide is going to be through smart innovation. I think a lot of that is artificial intelligence. And you can think about things like market access and pricing transparency. You think about uh, patient support programs that are more holistic. You think about things like telemedicine and being able to get that care in more remote regions of the United States where it's difficult maybe to find a, a doctor, and if not a doctor, then certainly a specialist. So all of those things, I think innovation, artificial intelligence, to your point, can help with. One of the, I think, misunderstandings that we're trying to combat is that 
um, a lot of people think artificial intelligence, and I think the first thing that they think of or that their minds go to is maybe the iRobot movie with <laughs> Will Smith or any other you know ridiculous science fiction movie that features some type of artificially intelligent like robotic presence that knows all and can intuit and is is smart if not smarter than the humans and one of the the realizations that we've come to and we talk a lot about on the innovation team is that AI is less if a than b like so not necessarily corollary and more like if something like a than b based on my prior experience. In other words, it's the amalgamation and amassing of that training and data over you know, a period of time that makes the artificial intelligence, in this instance, maybe machine learning or you know, deep neural networks, et cetera, that enables it to become smarter and reprogram itself and gain efficiency, et cetera. Uh, you need the data, you need the training, et cetera, and to feed it the data and to do the training, there still needs to be a really heavy human element. So at this point in time, a lot of times we'll say it's less true artificial intelligence and it's more like you know, human informed. Of, exactly. Yeah. Like an enhanced intelligence or augmented intelligence is a term that we'll use a lot. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, we don't envision the workforce, be it in healthcare or manufacturing is the one that I think the media latches onto, yeah. um, you know, most readily. And you look at, uh, say, the, the manufacturing process of Jeep actually opened up a, a massive new manufacturing facility. And the argument on one side of the fence would be, well, artificial intelligence is going to replace many of these jobs by rendering them obsolete, and the number of jobs available to the job force will shrink. Well, many economists will combat that and say, maybe, yes, render jobs obsolete, but at the same time, it's going to create new jobs and new opportunities. It's going to allow you to up-level your own training to be able to support this AI infrastructure like the machines that actually do the, uh, the robotic arms that put together the, the Jeeps and the cars in this example. And by doing that and up-leveling your degree of training and knowledge and acumen, you'll actually get paid more. So at the end of the day, it's beneficial to the workforce. And I think in healthcare, you know, many different or I should say similar examples can apply to, to the way that AI scales up um, and maybe does render some jobs obsolete, but at the same time creates a whole other new opportunity of jobs like training that AI, feeding the data sets and so on. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we were talking before we started taping about how initially, you know, it was basically like AI is coming and like, you know, <laughs> it's going to be this huge monumental thing that's going to, you know, consume everything in its path. But I think recently, and um, I know you have a couple examples to this end, it's been more about like, can some of these tactics be used to solve this one specific problem? Um, is that the way to kind of get in the door, so to speak? Uh, I know you would use them, Watson, as a sort of an analog right. in that way. So last year and maybe the last few years for us, we sort of took a page out of the, you know, the IBM or, or Google playbook. We went in and we tried to sell these enterprise level AI solutions. Mm -hmm. And I think more often than not, clients appreciated them. They liked what we were trying to do, but going from no AI to creating an entire process or workflow that impacted multiple brands over a period of years was just too much for them to handle, like going from zero to 60 in, in, in 2.5 in your new you know, Alfa Romeo or whatever. <laughs> um, we came in this year and we sort of honed and refined and changed up our strategy in that 
we're really trying to, and I think this has really resonated with clients, help them understand their business need. So we'll come in in a very consultative fashion. We'll help them, whether it's through whiteboarding, consultative sessions, um, you know, brainstorming, et cetera, innovation labs, and so on. We'll come in, we'll help them kind of frame up that business need, and then we'll show them through the application of artificial intelligence. I could also be VRA or whatever, you mm -hmm. know, some type of innovative technology, how they can actually create a system, a process, a product, a workflow that will uh, solve for that business problem. So really point solutions as opposed to this enterprise-wide solution. The goal is still to get to enterprise-wide and in creating the point solution, we're actually creating a foundation that can support multiple applications of artificial intelligence. But at the end of the day, and you'll know this well, so much of it is just in the packaging. How we resonate with the client, the decision maker, frame up the business problem. Um, one example that we'll use a lot, and, and you and I have chatted about, is just to come in and help the client actualize and understand, well, you know, AI is not this big, ethereal, catch-all, behemoth thing. It actually can solve something specific. So you think about search engine optimization and the way that that's being done or has been done historically, where the SEO specialists will come in, they'll put together a spreadsheet of keywords, an Excel document that quite literally might have five, it might have 10, it might have 20 or 30,000 keywords. <laughs> the amount of time it takes them to go through that list, to categorize, to analyze and understand each of those keywords and how it can add business uh, value is very, very arduous and very laborious. Well, now through the application of artificial intelligence in the name of the artificial intelligence we've developed over the past five and a half, six years is Cognitive Core, will apply Cognitive Core. Cognitive Core is then able to literally in a second produce the same result that it might take a human 10 or 20 or 30 hours to produce. There's still a human layer um, where the human will go in and check and maybe glean additional insight. But at the end of the day, it's actually more accurate than the human who, of course, will after you know the 5,000th word start to experience fatigue <laughs> like any any human. And the great thing is that what we're then doing is taking these 20 or 30 or 40 scoped hours that we've saved and telling the clients, let us still use them, but we're going to use them instead of on this quote unquote back office task, we're going to use them to help support better strategy, better development of making these insights that we've gleaned with the help of the AI more actionable. So all of the, the, the time that they're now spending is actually time that the client sees and appreciates and gleans value from, as opposed to the analysis time that was just, it wasn't really seen or understood. So I, I think that's one really great way to help open a client's eyes to see very immediately the impact that AI can provide on their business. Um, and, you know, is that another part of it? You know, just basically getting in and figuring out how to speak the language, you know, and basically finding finding, for lack of a better way to put it, kind of an advocate on the client side that can take it to other points in the organization and say, here is how this worked for us. Here is how it can work for you. I mean, are those conversations getting easier? <laughs> easier might be. I think, I think the a, laugh actually yeah, kind of yeah. gave us uh, your answer right there. You know? um, but actually the short answer <laughs> is yes. And I think one of the big reasons is that the way that we've built out and developed this artificial intelligence is such that it is purpose-built for pharma. It is 100% proprietary, and we've actually trained it up in the lexicon of the patient. We've even gone deeper and trained it up in the lexicon of the specific patient in MS and diabetes and hemophilia and so on, and with the HCP as well, populating um, you know, HCP conversation data from, say, a, a Sermo or a Quantia 
um, or other. So we're building this out over time and it's unbelievably evolved and advanced already. And because as we position this to a key stakeholder in the pharma organization, be it the brand team, be it the COE, be it um, procurement or purchasing, particularly with procurement and in instances where we might not otherwise be able to get in, even though we're a large proven independent agency, maybe they have a holding company in place already and they have this legacy agreement. Because we have this proprietary offering, we're able to get in at the very least have this conversation and nine out of 10 times, they go, wow, that really is valuable. We really are not getting that from other places. And Let's let's at least have a conversation and then we can do that whiteboard sort of consultative, you know, experience with the client and ultimately helping them understand um, the value that an artificial intelligence can provide by, again, framing it up in the context of solving a business problem has been successful. Um, one of the other examples that we spoke about a little bit was um, some of these tactics in the context of working with reps and making rep visits much more efficient. Um, would love for you to tell us a little more about that. Sure. So I feel like that you think about the way, and there are obviously agencies that do this um, from a very general perspective, but I feel like reps so oftentimes are um, at least at scale forgotten. and Not really forgotten, but just when you look at the amount of spend placed on other tactics, perhaps would be a better way of framing it up. Um, but one of the things that we've developed, and we've developed a couple tools to really empower the rep with the best data, the best insight, the best technology, so that as they're going in to the HCP's office, or even before that in pre-call planning, their idea of how they're going to uh, attack is unbelievably enhanced. And by attack, I mean provide exactly the right and most tailored and bespoke information to a specific doctor checking all the boxes that that doctor wants to hear. So one of the things that we've done is leveraging a multitude of data sources, um, not the least of which is the conversations doctors are having online, taking that data to inform insights that we can use to help the rep go into that conversation with a very clear talk track. So maybe the rep has gone in and talked to the doctor about you know, efficacy for a long period of time, believing that that's what they want to hear. Well, basically we've gleaned through artificial intelligence in this tool that actually what they want to hear is safety. So how can we help them create and craft a talk track that is much more focused on safety as kind of that core talking point with the supporting data and facts and so on. And the best thing is that this, this interface between rep and artificial intelligence can actually happen via the phone using voice. It can happen with an Amazon show or an Echo or a Google Home. So as they're in pre-call planning, maybe sitting, making their coffee in the morning and multitasking like we know reps love to do, <laughs> uh, which is great, they can actually ask how their day is looking. The voice technology will then, and this can be baked into Viva, it can be baked into any other platform that uh, a pharma enterprise is working with, but in Viva, it, it works fantastically well. They can then source all of this information, get it in a really easy way while they're drinking their coffee, reading the paper, doing other things. And then what's more, one of the other things that we've done is after they're out of the doctor's office doing a post-call record, they can do all of that via voice as well. And the artificial intelligence um, and natural language processing is able to ingest all of that conversation data and uh, properly populate it on a field report. So automating that, gaining efficiency, giving reps more time to actually 
think and strategize as opposed to sit in a piece of technology that nine out of 10 times we've heard is very cumbersome and difficult to import data into. All of that can happen in a matter of five or so minutes, literally while they're driving home, although there some some pharmas have rules against reps yeah. driving and, and doing other multitasking. multitasking Maybe in most environments is good. Yeah. In that particular one, it's really not. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, I, I think there's sort of a, I think it's sort of a misperception about, you know, reps, you know, spe- specifically to that last example that, you know, they're convinced, you know, they can't get in to see as many physicians as they used to. Any of these technologies are going to just make it so they can't do their jobs. But from what you're saying, it's actually different. This is something that they've actually embraced because they see how it works. Um, is that is that the case? Where where do the reps that you know you worked with along these lines kind of fall on the willingness to you know keep their mind open about all these tactics? Well, you think about IVAs and, and use of the iPad in office with the HCP, and this is a behavior that we've been trying to um, continue to hit upon or get reps to hit upon. Their managers go on you know field visits with them and, and have conversations with them and try to coach them up to you know, to use tools like that. And many times, because particularly with reps who have, you know, been in the game and have developed their their very specific routine. I almost look at reps like athletes. They're very stepwise and methodical and routine oriented. So if we're not able to insert ourselves smartly into their routine to provide a utility, they're not going to be receptive to whatever the technology or innovation is. And a lot of times it's just not natural to hold the hype. Yeah. And I'm not saying some reps use it and they love it and it's great. And we, as well as many other agencies, create great experiences on the iPad. But we've even created other innovations where the reps can you know, set the iPad aside and use a variety of tools to go through the IVA. But the net is that ways in which we can empower the rep and actually create a true utility that matches their existing routine, those are ways in which we're succeeding with them. Mm-hmm. And the making coffee in the morning, eating cereal, putting on the, the dress or the tie or the skirt, every rep is doing that in the morning. Yeah. And if we can, while they're doing that, instead of listening to the podcast or ESPN or or you know Dax Shepard, armchair expert, whatever, <laughs> they can actually get insight into their job that's going to save them time and make them better at what they do and make them more money. They've been really receptive to that thought. Um, we've talked a lot so far about technological innovation. Um, let's talk a little bit about media innovation. Um, in that component of your role, what are some of the things that are, I don't want to say catching on the most, we've already talked about programmatic and everything else, but sure. what, are, what are some of the kind of top items on your priority list over the next six months, next year or so? Sure. So the question that we have gotten um, from clients, from partners and, and other folks, and we've gone from being a, you know, a, um, a smaller but very reliable media agency to a really big power player in the, in the pharma space, which is super exciting. So I feel like we obviously now have you know, greater and more robust partnerships, a, a larger sphere of influence and so on, and access, you know, at a really deep and intimate level, you know, to the Facebooks of the world or the Googles or the CBSs and, and so on. Um, one of the questions that we get is, what is the future of TV going to be like? A major question that pharmas, particularly those in launch mode, are trying to work through is, if I'm launching in two or three or four or five years, what is my launch strategy going to be? how much of my investment should be in TV? And if I am investing in TV and DTC, how much of that should be linear TV? And it's amazing the difference of opinions in the marketplace right now. You're shaking your head, you know. Yeah. 
everything uh, that has traditionally worked versus everything that might not traditionally work two years from now. A hundred percent agree. And I think that there's a couple different considerations. One is from a reach standpoint, at least now and probably through the next three or four or five or six years, no other channel is going to provide the reach that a linear is going to provide. And one of the things we know is that older portions of the population, 50, 60 plus, are still spending 90% of their video viewing time consuming linear TV. Where at the other end of the spectrum, 18 to 35 year olds are spending less than 40% of their video consumption time consuming linear TV. So as many would argue, we're actually in a TV renaissance. Where are they spending their time? They're actually spending their time with OTT. So the Amazons, the the Netflixes of the world, um, but also on multi-channel video programming distributors. So this could be like a... Uh, a Hulu Live, it could be like a Sling TV, a Direct TV. Basically, it's linear, but it's also the dish providers. So it's live TV, but it's being piped in via the internet as delivered to differently. Delivered differently. Yeah. The, the the distribution mechanism is not, you know, um, cable. It's not satellite, uh, etc. It's just over the internet. And the reason why that's relevant, and I go through the acronyms, mm-hmm. is because because it's delivered digitally, just like OTT or over the internet the level of tracking and targeting and segmentation we're able to do is much, much, much greater is what I tell clients. The whole idea with linear is to get to a point where we're able to uh, create an environment where we're truly able to address addressable TV, which basically means the 100 million people who are watching the Super Bowl all see a different ad. Mm -hmm. And the ad is targeted based on their specific interests, the mindset that they're in, and so on. So with Linear and even Acrossix now is creating a TV solution that's going to enable this, and they are, um, I still think it's a little bit frothy. I still think there's, there's a, a good amount of innovation that needs to happen in the space. It's really encouraging. But on the other end of the spectrum where we have OTT and MVPD and VMVPD, the ability to target at a really granular level and get people at just the right point in their journey. And it's even more than that. It's not just content distribution. It's not just journey phase. It's actually mindset. And we know that the mindset of those consuming video, which is virtually everybody now, and they're you know, at home, on the TV, on their tablet, on their computer, phone, et cetera, is so dramatically different than the mindset of video consumption, say, 10, 15 years ago, where you sat down on a Friday night to watch TGIF, you know, from your classic 8 to 11 prime time. So how do you account for that? I do believe there's really smart strategies to do it. It's just giving clients the confidence and data and understanding and education to pull away from traditional linear and put more money into the digital addressable OTT MVPD uh, tactic buggy. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, how do you do that? Especially, you know, clients w- that are on the kind of the, well, we've always done it this way. Um, what are some of the things that they need to hear to understand that, okay, you know, three years, four years, five years from now when we're launching this big product, I'm, you're going to be launching it into a very different world than today. So true. I think a lot of it has to do with understanding that as a smart either AOR or media agency, you really understand your uh, your patient and you really understand their behavior, their consumption patterns, their mindsets, as I was just, just mentioning. And if you're launching into an environment where your target is going to be 55 plus, it's going to be very difficult to make the case that you want to go all digital or yeah. at least partially digital. I think when you speak to clients and they start to talk about 
you know, millennials or Gen Z and these quote unquote harder to reach demographics, a lot of times the media will call them unreachables and clients <laughs> are certainly, uh, I've seen more and more attracted to this particular type of language and it's true. Um, but the net is that they're not unreachable. They're actually very reachable. Mm -hmm. You need to know how to do it and know how to do it smartly. Um, and that's a really, really exciting uh, challenge for my team. And I think they absolutely love that. And when we're able to stand in front of a client and go, you told us it has been really difficult to target this particular group of patients or demographic. And we're coming back to you with really solid data and strategy and tactics that hopefully are going to give you a lot of confidence that we actually can target them. And we can target them probably with a much greater level of efficiency because the degree of segmentation we can do is much higher. So waste, et cetera, will go down dramatically and ROI uh, most likely as well as revenue as my analytics lead would coach me to say <laughs> will also go up. So basically we're a couple of years away from a TikTok only launch of any product. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's probably not coming down the pike tomorrow. Um, the one thing I will say with TikTok, though, is I was just talking to the, the UX team about this, is that those newer types of highly social, in this instance, video-driven platforms, um, from a TikTok to certainly a Snapchat, particularly in its infancy, not now, but a couple of years ago, the lack of UX was what drove the greatest level of engagement yep. from that unreachable part of the, uh, the population. So understanding how, as a brand, to inject yourself into that type of experience, whether it's through partnership, whether it's through um, content integration or so on, I think is getting more and more important. And clients, pharma clients specifically, are really going to have to step out onto a ledge and take risks that they maybe would never consider taking before because it truly will only be the way to get to their particular uh, target. Is the industry ready for it? <laughs> um I, I think we're getting closer and closer. And the example I always like to give is the FinServe example, where very much like FinServe, we've always said, well, why aren't you innovating to a greater extent? And we've always said, well, regulated environment. And it's not regulation for the sake of regulating. We need to regulate because the yeah. information that we're sharing is literally a matter of life and death, and we can't afford to get it wrong. Um, that said, I think that pharma enterprises will need to become more agile and more adept at handling ingestion of content, social media activity, engagement, influencers, things like that, uh, broadcast media even, and digital targeting in a much more nimble fashion than they have historically. So for uh, FinServe, rather, you think about the the wealth fronts and the betterments of the world, the lending trees who came in with robo-advisors and, yeah. and micro-lenders and challenging the JPMs, challenging the Wells Fargo's and the Cap 1's, well, they very quickly are like, they're going to eat our lunch. We need to adapt or die and lose out on this huge segment of the of the population. And Wealthfront, as an example, either Wealthfront or Betterment, one of them, was the closest or the fastest to $2 billion under management since Charles Schwab in the 70s. So it just shows how younger uh, generations and demographics have really, really embraced these innovative upstart technologies. Well, now in healthcare, I think a lot of similar things are happening. And it's too bad. I mean, Elizabeth Holmes would be a bad example, but we all know <laughs> how that ended. But there are many other, um, whether it's pharma, whether it's biotech, whether it's research, whether it's more DTC services, uh, medication delivery, like the capsules of the world are a great example. Pharmas need to have these on their radar, and I think many of them do, because if they don't start to adapt and evolve the way that they work both strategically, operationally, with agencies, with partners, innovation, open innovation, 
they're going to lose out on major revenue streams and it's going to hurt. All right. All right. Just a couple quick lightning round questions here and then we're going to let you go. Um, first one is, and I could probably guess based on some of the things that we've spoken about over the last couple of years, um, what's the project that you've most enjoyed working on, spearheading, and why? <laughs> there have been a lot of really, really exciting projects um, at InTouch because we're constantly growing and evolving as an agency. And I know this is lightning. I should make this quick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, go, go, go. <laughs> one of the projects, as you and I talked about earlier, that I think is really cool, back to the rep, is in innovating the way that reps actually are in office communicating with HCPs. We've developed, uh, and we did this actually five years, four years ago, um, in, a, in, a, in a different space for eye health where we actually created an experience that mirrored what macular degeneration actually looks like. Um, and we did a VR experience. We did an AR experience. One of the things that we really like, at least about AR, is that where VR is still largely driven by the technology, and you look at the advancements that Oculus has made in the new Oculus products, and the visual acuity gets better, which ultimately amounts to, and more portable, it ultimately amounts to a more immersive experience, and AR is not going to beat that. And the more immersive, the more you actually feel it and believe it. And we've actually uh, done research to suggest that the more we can immerse somebody, be it an HCP or even a patient, the more they'll be receptive to the particular message because all the other surrounding distractions, their email, their phone, the you know, the sibling or mother or daughter or sister calling, all of that just, just fades away and they're able to really, really focus on that moment and be in the moment. So for HCPs in particular, that's, that's I mean, tantamount to success. They're constantly being pulled in a million different directions. So we created a, um, a, a VR experience in office that will basically create this empathy engine so that HCPs will experience what patients in uh, a particular disease area will experience, be it Parkinson's or MS. And we're actually working with a, a specific client in a, in a you know, a disease area I won't mention, but at the end of the day, we believe, and we've actually done testing to suggest that HCPs are interested in seeing this. They don't believe it's challenging their experience or intelligent or their grasp on their, you know, particular uh, area of expertise, but they actually want to see it. And then we're going to introduce obviously MOA and the science and all these other great things to help dial up their, um, their level of knowledge, our level of knowledge, certainly their level of, of focus and understanding. All right. Um, lightning round question number two. Um, who are some of the other organizations, you know, whether an agency or anybody else in health that, you know, you're outside the client door and you leave after a meeting? Who do you not want to see? Uh, who are the competitors? Who else is doing some of these things well? Oh, I thought you were going to say, who are we going to, who do we want to partner with? Oh. Um, <laughs> um, who, I, I, who is your next act? No. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of great people, people always, I would say clients always hold us up against Click. I mean, they're also a super innovative agency doing really exciting things, which is awesome. Um, if I could answer the partnership thing, I think Surmo is doing really exciting yeah. stuff and, you know, in the HCP space and the HCP data space, really getting that candid, I hate the word authentic, I, I despise it because it's like a given these days, but an insight, a true insight into the way the HCP is thinking about a particular treatment, disease area, et cetera. I really like the work that we're, they're doing and we partner with them um, all the time and actually have an enterprise 
level agreement. I also think Salesforce has really done an awesome job. It seems like they're taking over the world, um, like the B2B world. But I think they've done a really awesome job of impacting the way that uh, like Social Studio is a great tool of theirs, obviously Marketing Cloud, Audience Studio. They're doing a much better job and we're actually working with them to help them and they're helping us and vice versa. Um, But to create a product set that is more pharma uh, centric. Mm-hmm. And I think if they can do that and get that right, that will be an unbelievable utility to agencies and to clients. They don't want to do the implementation. They're not, there's no overlap. There's no duplication of effort between a, a sales force and an in-touch. So going in with them to a client and partnering to deliver really innovative solutions. Einstein's an awesome example in Social Studio where we can actually layer in artificial intelligence to help categorize and classify, not dissimilar to the search example, every single piece of visual content that we're ingesting into our workflow across any of a brand's social platforms. Last question for you. Who is your current marketing role model? Current marketing role model. Oh, that's a good one. Um, I I think that, man, Farouk is certainly one of them. (laughs) I mean, working for somebody who's so much of a visionary um, and inspirational is really awesome. I've always liked Steve Jobs and his presentation style, maybe not his acerbic wit or personality, but at least in, <laughs> in presentation style and the way that he um, develops a product and then prepares, say, for a, uh, a PowerPoint or a keynote has always been really inspirational. Mm-hmm. All right. Justin, thanks so much for coming in here today. Uh, covered a ton of stuff. Um, if you want to listen to this, please do so on Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. Really appreciate you coming in. Thanks again. Let's do it again sometime. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And this is Larry Dobrow from the MMM podcast. Catch you next time. Take care.